0: wonderful job. Take your Bibles, turn with me this morning, John chapter 6 and verse number 34. I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, Finding Satisfaction in Life. Being that this is the first Sunday in the new year, many of you have made resolutions about what you're going to change this year. Whether you've written down those formally or not, really doesn't change the fact, one of the greatest challenges facing us as as human beings is to engage our lives in what will produce lasting satisfaction. All too often we give ourselves in the pursuit of something and yet when we achieve it, it does not produce the satisfaction that we had hoped for. In the 1930s the most famous living author at that time name was William Somerset Maugham. He was an accomplished novelist, playwright, short story author. He enjoyed incredible popularity and great wealth. In fact he lived his latter years living in opulence in a villa on the Mediterranean. Shortly before his death, he was visited by his nephew, Robin. When he arrived, he found his uncle reading a Bible that he had sent him. And he was reading the passage which says, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Mom said, I must tell you that that text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's all a, all a bunch of bunk, but I thought it quite interesting all the same. That evening after dinner, Mom flung himself down onto the sofa, and he said, Robin, I'm so tired. Burying his hands, his face in his hands, he went on, I've been a failure, a failure the whole way through my life. Well, his nephew, trying to encourage him, said, well, you're the most famous writer alive. Surely that means something. He responded, I wish I'd never written a word. It has brought me nothing but misery, and now it's too late to change. It's too late. Shortly after that visit, his uncle died. It's kind of a grim story. Am was one of the most famous and celebrated men of his generation. A man who had everything and yet did not find satisfaction in any of it. The Lord does not want anyone to come to the end of their life, their earthly existence, only to recognize that none of the things that they had sought give any satisfaction so he points to faith in himself as the only true source of eternal satisfaction now previously in john chapter 6 we had looked at how many in the crowds were who followed jesus were following him for the wrong reasons they had witnessed the miraculous feeding of the 5000 with five small loaves and two small fish and they all, seemed to be, all they were seemed to be able to do was make a physical connection. They wanted Jesus to continue to meet their physical need for food. In fact, in verse 30, they say that if he will provide a satisfactory sign, i.e. another miracle, that they will believe that he is the Messiah. In fact, they had in their minds what that suitable miracle would be. That miracle would be for Jesus to again provide manna for heaven for them. They believed this because the rabbis said that the coming Messiah would again give them manna. Therefore, the people were challenging Jesus to produce the bread of God, the manna, from heaven in order to prove his claims to be the Messiah. Now, in verses 32 and 33 that we read last week, he corrected their thinking by pointing out some errors in the way they were thinking. First, he dealt with the error that they believed Moses had provided the manna. From heaven. It was not Moses, but rather God who had provided the manna. But most importantly, perhaps, Jesus told them that the manna was not really the bread of heaven, not really the bread of God. It was only the symbol of the bread of God, that the bread of God was a person. And that person gives life to the world. And that person was Jesus. Now the crowd may not have understood everything that Jesus said, but they understood at least part of it. The bread that they wanted did not come from Moses, it came from God. They also understood that to some extent that what he was talking about was beyond the physical. So they said to the Lord in verse number 33, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me, he will <clears throat> gives me he will come will come to me, and the one who gives to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me I should not lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. This morning, I want you to see four things that this passage teaches us about Jesus. First of all, Jesus is the source of life. There are two broad, significant truths in this very small portion of verse 34. I am the bread of life. Now, first of all, I want us to look at that statement, I am. To understand the impact of what Jesus has just said when he uttered the words, I am the bread of life, we have to travel back in the Old Testament all the way to the moment when God revealed himself and his personal name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. God had sent Moses to be his spokesman in Egypt. And Moses said, how will the people know that you have sent me? And God's answer was, tell the people I am has sent you. The phrase I am means the one who was and is and always will be. It was a statement of deity. From that time forward, the Jews, he associated the phrase as a claim to deity. So when Jesus declares in John 8, in verse chapter 8, verse 58, and before Moses was, I am, he absolutely shocked his listeners. For they understood what he was saying very clearly. He was saying, I am God. At this point, his enemies wanted to stone him for blasphemy, and understandably so. For either this was the truth, or he was deluded and it was a lie. We're going to find that seven times in this gospel, the gospel of John, Jesus said who he was using the statement, I am. And each time he deepens our understanding of his provision for us. In chapter 6 and verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8 and in verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10 and verse 7, he says, I am the door. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. He says in chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the the good shepherd. In chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, in verse 1, he says, I am the vine. Clearly, Jesus has gathered a collection. John has gathered a collection of the statements of Jesus which plainly show the Savior of whom he is writing is the one and only true God. The next part of that statement is to understand, he says, I am the bread of life. As the opening I am statement that John records, Jesus is is telling us that he is the bread of life. Now that's quite a statement. It's no coincidence, by the way, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. He's claiming to be that which one needs in order to have life and continue to live. Without Jesus, there is existence, but there is not life. Christ gives us eternal life, not only Does he have life in himself, but he gives life to all those who will come to him. So not only is Jesus the source of life, but we find out that he is the sustainer of life. When Jesus spoke of himself as being the bread, he was using an image that everyone in that day understood. In Jesus' day, bread was more than just a common part of the daily diet, it was the staple of the common man's diet. You remember in the model prayer in Luke chapter 11, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. If he did not have bread, the common man, if he did not have bread, he did not eat. If he did not eat, he died. It was that necessary. The implication is that Jesus, like the physical loaves of bread in our world, is is the only true sufficiency for the need of mankind. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. And third, Jesus is the satisfaction in life. I would not be surprised to learn that some of the most Dissatisfied people in the world live in the developed countries where we have everything we could possibly want. The sad truth is that there are people all over the world who have more than enough to eat, have a comfortable place to live, yet they are not satisfied. There are people who are hungry for more than just a full belly and a comfortable existence. There is a restlessness in man that says there has to be more to life than this. More to life than just existence. The point I want to make is that God does not want anyone to get to the end of their earthly existence to find that all there was was futility and mistakes. The Lord spoke of his being the bread of life to rescue us from the emptiness of life without him. In verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. Unlike the English language, in the Greek language, it's okay to use a double negative, negative. and that's what's found here. Use a double negative to emphasize a statement. He literally says, he who comes to me shall never, ever hunger again. In addition to the double negative, there is an added adverb so that it would literally read, he who comes to me will never, ever, at any time, Hunger. Jesus is affirming in the most dramatic way possible the satisfying nature of the life that He brings. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter fifty-five and verse one: "Come, all ye who are thirsty, and come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost." Why spend money on that which is not bread and labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will be delighted in the richest fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. Now, obviously, what's being promised here is a satisfaction of our spiritual hunger the hunger for meaning, the hunger for peace, the hunger for contentment. It is the Lord and the Lord alone who will give us the lasting satisfaction of our innermost desires. All other sources will fail to satisfy. Sure, wealth can satisfy you for a while, but it can never really bring you peace. Fame can satisfy for a while, but it can never give you a lasting sense of the meaning to life. Even success only gives momentary contentment. The alternative to this is is the satisfaction that is found in Jesus alone. Notice verse number 36 begins with the word, the conjunction, but. A strong contrast. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. But those who do not choose to believe and as a result have not come to him, accordingly they have not received satisfying life that he is offering. Their failure to believe was the critical factor that cut them off from the blessings that he is offering. But we have to understand that by believe more is meant than just an acceptance of the truth of what he's saying. One can believe that Jesus is a real person and that he died on a cross and even believe that he rose from the dead and still not be saved. To receive one is offering. One must come by faith. And be born again. Fourth, Jesus is the security of life eternal. He is our guarantee. Now, <clears throat> I'll be the first to admit that many people have trouble with the doctrine of security of the believer in the olden times it was called perseverance of the saints and in our day sometimes it's called once saved always saved now this does not mean that a professed believer will never fall away now notice i use the word professed a prime example of that is judas iscariot he was one of the 12 he heard Jesus preach. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. And yet, he was not saved. His problem was not that he came in sincere faith and later he failed and because of his failure, he was cast out. Judas's problem was that he never came to Jesus in sincere faith. John later explains in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. He says there, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I really believe that A failure to accept the doctrine of security of believer as a result of two things in life. One, it's the unfortunate result of watching the behavior of some people who claim to be Christians. These people who erroneously think that this gives them some kind of license to sin. That they've been saved in the past, but now they can do whatever they want because I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. They believe because they have walked an aisle or because they have prayed a prayer or because they have joined a church, that transaction is a guarantee that regardless of what they do, they will always be saved. Now, while it is true that they are not saved or lost by any action on their part, if they are saved, the Bible says they are changed. 2 Corinthians 5 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. That tells me that if a person has truly been saved, then they are changed. Although oh, they, they can still choose to sin, they will never be happy in sin again. Secondly, I believe that some people reject the doctrine of security because they do not truly understand what it means. They doubt security because they believe their security depends upon themselves and what they can do. They believe, I don't believe I can live up to it, I don't believe I can hold the standards. And the answer to that is, true, you can't. You can't. But since I never did anything in the first place to save myself other than to accept the free gift of grace, I can't do anything to keep myself saved either. My salvation and my security rest in the hand of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice three things about Jesus being our security for life and eternity. First of all, all who are chosen will come. He says in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, this verse speaks of those great mysteries the sovereignty of God and the election of God, that those who are chosen will come. Yet, God is not standing on the sidelines, just a helpless spectator, until we decide that we want to believe. And then and only then does he come into the process. The truth is no one comes to Jesus unless for the Father draws him. From the beginning to the last, our salvation is something that God brings about. Yes, we are called upon to repent and believe, but the process still begins with God. Not only will all who are chosen come, but all who come will be welcomed. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. There is the assurance that those who come to Jesus receive only the warmest of welcomes. And again, we have that emphatic double negative so that it says, him who comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. Now, history is full of examples of the most unlikely sinners who came to Christ. John Newton, preacher, author of the great hymn Amazing Grace, was from a human perspective one of the least likely men to be saved. He was engaged in the slave trade and he was so vile that he could hardly be thought to be a recipient of God's grace. Another, man, another example is a man that we know as St. Augustine. Yet in his youth, he was so captivated by sexual sin that any thought of him being saved was hard to conceive. And of course, we can't leave out the apostle Paul. He was a man that was so convinced of his own righteousness and so filled with hate for those of the cause of Christ that he would have been the very last man anyone would think could be saved. And yet all of these Hopeless sinners found welcome when they came to Christ in faith. And finally, all who come are safe forever. Verse 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. And I think you ought to underline this phrase in your Bible. That of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up in the last day. I love that analogy if you can ever get it into your mind. Here's the hand of Jesus. Here is you you're placed in the hand of Jesus and he closes his hand around you and then the father closes his hand around Jesus' hand how's anybody ever going to get you out of that grip? the answer is nobody will nobody will not only does Jesus not cast out anyone who comes to him but he sees that any such person is never lost this is the will of the father and Jesus always does the will of the father Father and Son work together. It is God the Father who loved the world so much that he sent his only Son. It is Jesus the Son who died on the cross to secure our salvation. It is the Father who, when we believe, has chosen us and drawn us and is the Son who will never cast us out. It is the will of the Father who sent his Son to the world that none of those that he gives to his Son will be lost. F.B. Meyer states it this way. He stands between all of us and all of our Satan assailants, whether they, the, they are the righteous demands of the law or the dark and malignant powers of hell. Ever he is asserting himself between our enemies and ourselves, covering us acting as our shield and buckler and receiving into his own royal heart the blows that were meant for our worthless selves. We cannot be lost. Let me close with this passage found in John chapter 10 and verse 28. It's, One of my favorites, and it is the basis of the illustration I gave you just a moment ago. It says, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So let me apply this truth to all kinds of different believers. Is Jesus able to keep the weak and the doubtful believer? The answer is, of course. Jesus is just as able to keep the weak and doubtful believer as the strong and the bold our security is not found in our ability, but in the ability of Christ. What about the children? We rejoice when the children come to the Lord in the, early in their lives. But is Christ able to keep children who have truly believed? Of course, Jesus is able to keep even the smallest of his sheep. What about the elderly Christian with physical restraints and waning strength? Can Jesus keep me till the end? Of course he can. As our strength wanes, his does not. Jesus is the source of life. Jesus is the sustainer of life. Jesus is the satisfaction of life and Jesus is the. Security of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you, first of all, for your love. A love that allowed your only son to come up, to come and take residence here on the earth. And that would have been sacrifice enough. But not just to allow your only son to come and take up human existence but that he came here as our substitute he came and he because he lived a sinless life he was able to be our substitute he took our sins to the cross and there on the cross he paid the penalty not for his sin but for our sin and he offers that to us as a free gift that if we will accept what he has done that we can have eternal life with him Father, there may be one here today that has never accepted that truly in their life. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that they're never going to be good enough. They can never do enough in their lives to pay for the sin they've already committed, much less the sin that they may commit of the remainder of their life. They cannot save themselves. But Jesus has already made that payment and he extends that as a gift, an offer to all those who would come to him in repentance and accept what he has done as payment for their sin. If there's one here today that needs to do that, I pray, Lord, that you'd help them to realize they can do it before they leave this place. They don't have to spend another doubtful day, another day in which they don't know that if they were to die, they would not spend eternity with you. For those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that you help us to once again turn our attention to you, to reject that part of the world that says, "I'll give you satisfaction," and recognize that our the only true and abiding satisfaction is found in connection with you, Lord. Help us, we pray. Forgive us our weakness, we pray. Whatever it is that you want to do in our lives this morning, maybe there's someone here that they just need to be assured that you still love them, that you care about them. No matter what mistakes they've made, that they're still your child. And nothing can ever change the fact that they are your child. Help them today. Strengthen them with the with the knowledge that you are a loving father and you care immensely about them. I don't know what else you may be speaking to, to us about this morning, but I pray that you'd have your will in your way. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you-